This is How Did I Get This Far, a podcast tackling the basic skills and knowledge that we all completely missed learning. Soon enough, you'll stop having to ask yourself, how did I get this far? On this episode, wait, the police don't actually have to always read you your Miranda rights when they arrest you? It's time to find out, how did I understand the police this far? Hello everyone, today we are on the lookout for the basics of our law enforcement. With all of the controversies surrounding police departments, this topic is more important than ever. Taking charge today is my guest, Officer Jeremy Bohannon. He is a community award-winning police officer and recruiter from the Austin Police Department in Austin, Texas. He is also a youth engagement specialist, speaker, and self-proclaimed CEO of Optimism, taking positive change to build the connection between the police and the community. On top of that, Officer Bohannon shares his uplifting perspective of his life as a police officer to his tens of thousands of followers on TikTok. I'm so grateful to have you, Officer Bohannon. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Amanda. I always ask my expert guests to share their career journey, but this question was actually even submitted by my listeners. Why did you become a police officer? Um, Well, it's a really long story, but I'll try to shorten it. Um, I never thought I would be a police officer, um, even all the way up through college and beyond. Um, You know, I played football in college. Um, I was a high school football coach and, you know, I always did things for the community. I loved going to the schools and talking to kids. You know, I just loved having that type of interaction with people and being a role model. You know, after a few years, I moved down to Texas. Well, actually, before that, I became a corrections officer. So I started in a penitentiary just by chance. Um, And then one of my supervisors told me I'd be good in law enforcement. And so when I moved down to Texas, I started looking for jobs and I got a job at UT um, 12 years ago. And I love it. Wow. Well, knowing that you were once a corrections officer, that is a whole nother episode I want to do about what it's like in a jail or a prison. So I'll keep that in mind for the future. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, we're going to move into our game portion of the episode. Uh, This is superlatives. So I'm going to give you some superlative phrases and you will give me your stories in relation to the topic. Okay. So the first one, favorite and least favorite nickname for a police officer. Uh, I guess I'll say favorite and least favorite only because it's funny is, you know, when we get called pigs. Uh, I wouldn't say it's like favorite. Um, you know, people don't like it and I don't, but you know, I've always been called negative things all my life and kind of just run with it. So when people call me a pig, I'm like, that's cool. Cause I like bacon, you know, I just like, you know, I like to mess with stuff. I, I just, I kind of take things in stride. So I love that perspective. Like, yes, you know what? I like bacon. That That's great. Go, go you. That's awesome. Um, okay. So the next one, the call you reported to that stuck with you the most, whether it was because it was the most emotional, the funniest or the most bizarre. I would say um, one time I was, I was driving down, I was actually going to a call and then a, uh, a 911 hang up came out pretty much like maybe two blocks away. And those are really low priority because usually what it is, is, you know, somebody may dial 911 and then hang up. And so the per- percentage wise, it's always something that kind of ends up being like, oh, I, I, I accidentally added a one and I was trying to dial out or something like that. Um, so I ended up taking it thinking that, hey, I'll just go clear this call really quick because we were really busy and somebody was already headed to the other call that wasn't super high priority either. Um, so I was like, let me go clear this call really quick so then I can go back and back you up. And so I run into the apartment and you know I go up the stairs. And next thing I know, people are pointing me in the direction. Nobody could speak English. So they, they spoke some other, other language. And so uh, as I get up to the room, um, there's a lady in the bathroom and she is almost giving birth so the head's basically coming out so i had to think you went. so i get on the radio and i'm like yo i don't know what to do and so um actually helped pull the baby out um 
got it wrapped up. They told me to tie the umbilical cord with the shoestring. Um, and about the time I was tying the umbilical cord, the EMS finally showed up um, and was able to kind of take over. Wow. Did you have to get trained on how to handle, I guess, medical reports? As a police officer, we do. Um, and this is where we're training is like really, really important. And not every department is lucky enough to have good top-notch training. Um, and so we do get uh, medical training to where we learn, like if somebody's got like gunshot wounds or we know how to like pack wounds, we know if somebody's got something in the, the chest, you know, a sucking chest wound, we know how to um, secure that with the plastic. So we have all the equipment to be able to go in and help at least be that first person to kind of do a little triage and fix things a little bit so that they can get to EMS and then get to the hospital. So um, our department saved a lot of lives. I think that's what's helped with the homicide rate because we're able to get there quick and then um, do like a quick, some teething. We learned that how to stop the bleed. It's an actual class so that we can save somebody some time or give them extra time to get to the hospital. So Wow. We'll go more into what the training is like to become a police officer, but that wasn't even a question I wrote down, and I'm, I'm glad that we brought that up. All right, and then the last one, the most accurate and least accurate TV or movie portrayal of police officers. Ooh, <laughs> I'd say all of them are pretty non-accurate, like you think <laughs> Bad Boys and what was the one I was thinking? Oh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I actually like that one. I think that's close <laughs> just because it's like, you know, it's more funny or kind of, you know, it's it's more about the characters and stuff and not really about what they're actually doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, even when you look at live PD and first responder and stuff like that, anytime you have, if you're doing your job on a regular basis, say regardless of what you're doing, and you have a camera on you, you're going to do something a lot different than what you normally probably would do. So um, you get a camera as an officer. Now you're going to try to find things because you don't want them to be bored how you normally are on your normally bored day. So um, so that's why it's kind of you got to take a lot of those things with a grain of salt. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of those things are played up for the camera. But when you look at movies, it's just shootouts and all that stuff. And, you right. know. It's it never happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then we'll move into what it actually is like. What does the process of becoming a police officer look like? Every department's different. In my department, what we do is we have an online application. You know, if you decide you want to be a police officer, you go to the website. Um, you know, we have a lot of frequently asked questions and, you know, um, disqualifiers like, you know, right away. So, you know, you have to have you a citizen. You have to be 20 and a half. Oh, that's a very specific age. Well, it's uh, because in Texas, in order to get a license to be a police officer, you have to be 21. Um, You know, so we'll have an intake process where we'll gather all the online applications and then that gets vetted and then it goes on for testing. Um, So some places they'll do like a run or push ups or vertical jump. So everybody has their own pretty much physical standards. And then you'll have a written test as well. Um, If you pass all that, then you go through a background phase. Um, And then once you're pretty much done with all that polygraph drug test, um, you know, you'll have multiple interviews. We'll talk to everybody around, you know, to see what type of person you are and if you're a good fit for to be a police officer. And once that happens and you'll get offered for hire um, in our department, you go you'll go into an academy. And in that academy is when you'll earn your your license. In some other departments, you may have to have a license before you can apply to them because they're too small to have like their own academy or something like that. So they want somebody that's gone through an academy already and then they'll hire them after they've already gone through an academy. All right. So I guess there's a lot of smaller steps that I definitely did not know. So that's Mm -hmm. good to know. 
So let's say you've become a police officer. What are the major components of your uniform now? So what does that look like? And then I'd love to also go into the different weapons on the tool belt. Like what are the different parts of that as well? Mm -hmm. Most departments, um, you know, they have a few different types of uniforms. And so uh, we kind of classify them. So a class A would be uh, more of like your dressier. Um, We wear a tie with it, long sleeves. We wear a metal badge and, you know, probably have like a metal clip on our tie or something like that. So we do that if there's like a funeral or, or graduation or, you know, some, some type of event, right? So class B would be basically the same type of thing with the metal, but short sleeve. So it's more for patrol. Um, our C is uh, more of a tactical type, which most officers wear today. Um, it has like a patch instead of an actual metal badge. Um, and then it's, it's just more tactical. There's more pockets. Um, it moves a little bit better. Um, it's just for kind of for your everyday patrol. Um, cause you don't want to be running around with a badge flapping around a big, heavy right. badge and stuff like that. So that's our blue uniform, but we also have bike uniforms, um, which are the same type, you know, we'll have patches on it. Canine units usually they'll have like a green, more kind of military stylish type uniform, um, SWAT has a different uniform. There's a lot of different types of uniforms that, that we're able to wear. Um, what it does is it, you know, kind of helps identify people when we're on scene sometimes. That's one thing. And then um, really it's just for comfort. So a lot of people, we can kind of wear whatever we want, really. Nice. Okay, great. And then um, obviously I'd love to go more into the weapons as well. And then also what the training for those different weapons look like. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so our, our duty belt, um, we, you know, we have our duty weapons that we carry, um, we, you know, our gun is our pistol. We basically call it our duty weapon. Every officer in our department has the same duty weapon. And that's just so that, you know, if somebody gets injured or somebody drops their gun or something happens, then you'd be able to pick it up and use it uh, without having to learn it. And then, you know, we also carry extra ammo just in case we need it. We have a taser. Some people will carry a baton. Asp, we call it, but those are just little batons. Pepper spray, you know, so those are pretty much the main weapons that we carry with us on a daily basis. And so the the training that we have, so usually like in the academy, we'll do our duty weapons. Uh, We'll do about a two-week block, and then we'll kind of do like more like refresher type things throughout the the academy. And really when we're learning our gun and we're trying to figure out how to be safe with it, that's why we have a, a lot more training with that because that's pretty much the thing that can hurt somebody the most. We train to the point where we're at least proficient or we try to get proficient in at least hitting a target. Um, a lot of people ask, hey, why don't you shoot the hand or the, the kneecap or whatever? But that would take years and years of a mastery level marksmanship. And there's no reason to train that much to be that skilled. Um, and so we just shoot for the biggest target, right? And so usually that target is here. Because if you aim for this, you'll probably still miss or you might hit somewhere else, but at least you're aiming for a bigger spot. Whereas if you're, I was aiming for your hand out here, um, that's just a huge margin of error. And so we train enough to try to get as proficient without overtraining. And so, and then with the taser, uh, same type of thing. Um, the taser, you know, we have a target area on the taser. And so we train that target area. There's some red zones where you cannot aim for those things. You can intentionally try to hit somebody in the face or in the groin or something like that. But it could happen just because people move and it's dynamic. Um, so we train a lot on our taser. We get tased ourselves so that we can figure out what the effects are of it um, and see that how effective it is and also how ineffective it can be on some people. Um, and that, you know, shows you that it, it doesn't hurt, but it will incapacitate you if used right way or if it's connected the right way. 
Same thing with pepper spray. We, you know, we don't do a whole lot of training on like how to point and everything, but we do get sprayed. We're pretty much trained to spray around the eyebrow so then the spray comes down. We also get sprayed ourselves so we can see how much it sucks and how long it takes to <laughs> decontaminate from it. With our ASP, in the academy, we trained a lot with it to make sure that we're doing it the right way. Because once again, this like all of our weapons can be considered deadly. So with our baton, you know, we learn to strike in the kind of meaty areas like the arm and the leg, and also training a lot on weapon retention to make sure that somebody else can't come and just take our, our weapons away from us. Okay. I didn't even think about that part. That's a yeah. good point. I definitely want to discuss more about what it is like interacting with a police officer. But before we do that, I'd love to talk about when we should be calling the police. So we can start as a bystander. When you see something suspicious, what are the first things you should do? Should you get involved? Should you record? What should you do? And then when might it be appropriate to call the police? Yeah, no, that's a great question. What we tell people is to be a really good witness. You know, even as an off-duty officer, if I'm out there and I'm not working, um, and I see something happening, as long as nobody's in like danger or like life-threatening or I don't have to go in and save anybody, I'm just going to be a good witness. And what that means is I'm going to get a really good description. Um, I may be the one that calls the police if it's an emergency. Um, I may take down license plates and just, you know, just give a, a, enough good information um, that when an officer does show up, they have something to go on and can continue on and figure out what's happening. You can record um, because it's legal to record people. Just make sure that you're not interjecting yourself into the situation to where now you may become a victim as well. Um, and so if it's safe to do so, do that. Um, if it's an emergency and you believe the police need to be there, call the police and don't jump in unless you feel necessary to save somebody's life or something. Um, but you don't really have a duty to do that. So, you know, if you have your family with you, um, you know, protect yourself, protect your family and just really be a really good witness and make, you know, let the officers know what's going on. So if they need to get there quick, they can get there. Okay, great. And then what if you are the one that's in danger? Do you have any advice for what to do when the cops are, are on their way? Um, yeah, I mean, if you can get to safety, get to safety if you can. Um, same type of thing. Be a good witness. See what the person looks like, especially if they're trying to leave. Which way did they leave? Which way did they go? But, you know, always protect yourself first and, um, you know, get to safety or find people, find light. You know, try your best, even though you're probably going through a traumatic incident at the time, to try to remember some details about the person or about what happened, um, which way they went. That's good advice. Uh, so let's say you are interacting with the police now. Uh, whether it's because you got pulled over on the road or you're being questioned by the police. Um, I do want to bring up earlier in this podcast, I did an episode on Black Lives Matter, and we had the conversation about how black families typically have to have a conversation with their black children about what to do when pulled over by a police officer, which is a very heavy conversation. But I also believe that every family should have the conversation about what to expect so that the experience can go smoothly. Of course, it is a challenging conversation, but also, if we don't talk about it, we don't know what to do, and it's going to be more overwhelming. Uh, mm. So I'd love to talk about, from your perspective, what should people expect and how should they behave in order to have a smooth experience when discussing something with a police officer? You know, during your interaction um, with police, most time, majority of the time, the interaction, the behavior or what people are doing is kind of going to dictate how that interaction goes. And so what I always tell people is, you know, which sucks and I hate having to say it, um, but you have a better chance of getting out of a situation 
um, the nicer you are or the, you know, at least the more, you know, compliant and, and the better you can work with the officer. That doesn't mean, you know, telling on yourself or anything like that. It's just saying, hey, sometimes we get you get pulled over and you think you didn't do it. Uh, the problem is a lot of times we argue that and, you know, we get upset because we don't think the officer is, is justified with what they do. Um, and a lot of times it's just kind of misinformation. People think they know more about the law or what officers can and can't do. And so that gets this kind of headbutting type of situation. And so what I tell my family and everybody else is don't put your your life in the hands of an officer. Um, and how you how you can do that, how you can not do that is by just you know, listening, answering the basic questions, um, getting on with your day, and then arguing after the fact by complaining, um, you know, going to the department, going to the city, and putting in a complaint on that officer if you feel like you were wrong. Just don't try to hold court right there on the street and try to argue your case, right? Officers should be giving people the reason and allowing them to explain what's going on or what they're doing or, um, you know, why they committed an offense or whatnot. And so that sometimes that'll give that person at least that opportunity to go ahead and vent um, and then, you know, explain their actions and whatnot. Um, but as officers, we have to not be antagonistic as well. And we have to make sure that we're being fair and, and doing the right thing. I never thought about if you do have a complaint, save it for when it's a safe space. And you can complain on the officer right then and there. Um, but just know, like everybody is different, right? Everybody takes news different. So you don't know if you're going to get, you know, that that nice cop or you don't know if you're going to get that one that just got in an argument with his wife on the phone. Or, you know, we don't know what the other person is going through. We don't know if their family members are sick and they're trying to get there. We don't we don't know what's going on in their life as well. And then you add on top of that, interjecting a police officer into your situation. Now you're stopped. You might get a ticket. Uh, you know, you're in trouble for something. And it's all we're always uh, interacting with people at their worst time, because usually when somebody gets pulled over, that creates a bad day for them. Um, and so and we're always a part of that on a daily basis. Yeah. That, and that, I mean, that's like a life rule. Like you never know what someone's going through. But I think specifically in these scenarios, that is a really good point. Mm-hmm. Okay, Let's say if things do escalate to the point where it is getting a little heated. Mm-hmm. What do you do? What does that look like uh, when you're getting arrested? Obviously, I'm clueless on this. I've I guess never gotten arrested, so I don't know what this looks like. So, like, what are your Miranda rights? What happens? Where do you go when you're getting arrested? What does that all look like? Okay, so, yeah, so when you're arrested, that basically means that a a police officer believes that you probably committed a crime. So an officer needs probable cause to say that you committed some type of crime. And those are elements that are in a, you know, in our penal code. Um, They're kind of broken down into elements like culpable, culpable mental states. Did you intentionally do it? Uh, what the elements are, what you did, and then what the offense is, um, you know, if it's misdemeanor or felony or whatnot, and then what the punishment of that is. And so if you're getting arrested, that means you've probably committed like a class B misdemeanor or above here in Texas. If you get in handcuffs and everything's good, two things can happen now. Um, an officer could read you the Miranda rights, um, which is that you, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law yada, yada, yada. And so when you're read those rights, they're basically letting you know that, hey, you have the right to not say anything. You have the right to a lawyer. Um, you have a right to a trial and all that stuff. And you don't have to incriminate yourself right now. And then after that, the officer will ask you, hey, do you want to talk to me pretty much? It's like, hey, do you understand your rights? And do you want to waive your rights? Or do you want to invoke your rights? Basically meaning, yes, I'll, I'll talk to you now because I want to, or I don't want to say anything and I'll wait. 
right? If an officer really wants to get more information out and try to gather more info specific to the crime that they're investigating, they would have to Mirandize you. You know, you'd have to agree to speak and then you can speak and we can get that information. Um, if, if, if we basically have like a clear cut type of thing and we don't need to ask more questions right then and there, um, you won't get a Miranda, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that, you know, um, a lot of people say, hey, you can't arrest me because you didn't ask me my Miranda rights or stuff like that, you know, and so the Miranda is only for when you're being interrogated and that's it. And so you have to have custody. Uh, if you were free to leave and I didn't stop you or detain you and I just started asking questions, I don't have to Mirandize you. Right. But as soon as I make it to where you feel like you're not free to leave and you have to talk to me because I have you detained or I have you arrested, you're in handcuffs, you're in the backseat of a car, uh, you know, I'm, I'm blocking the door from you and making you talk to me, then I have to read you Miranda to let you know what your rights are. And then if you do want to talk, then I can start asking you questions. And now after that, everything that you say um, can be used. Right. So I can put that in a report. If it goes to court, then they can use that information. Now, if I don't tell you your Miranda rights and I just start asking you specific questions, all of that information that I gather, it's thrown out because you didn't get read your Miranda rights. Um, now, if you just start talking and I haven't asked you any questions and you just start telling me everything, those are called rest just I statements, basically saying like, hey, he, he was just giving that information on his own without being prompted or asking any questions. Those things can be used in court. A lot of people get it confused thinking that, hey, I have to get Miranda to get arrested. And since you didn't Mirandize me, you can't arrest me. And that's not true. You know, that's something on a whole nother level. And so once we get to the jail here in Texas, what we do as police officers, we don't have our own jail. Uh, we take them to the county jail. And then we write our probable cause affidavit, basically saying what the elements are, what happened, why that goes to the judge. So as you're sitting in jail, you're waiting to go see a judge pretty much. And so you'll see the judge. They'll let you know why you're in there. They'll basically set like a bond. You can pay to get out or you may have to do a couple days to be able to get out. Um, but then your trial may be a year later. You know, you may not be convicted right there, but you've gone to jail for it and then awaiting a trial. So some people await trial at home. Some people stay in jail for a long time to get to that trial process. The process of being in jail, I always pictured it, I guess, like in the movies where it's just like one or two cells and then like a sleeping cop with like the keys attached to <laughs> his pocket. But that's somewhere you might stay for multiple nights. Is it only because you don't have the money or depends on the Well, Yeah, it, it depends on the crime. Uh, depends on uh, this is a lot of times it kind of depends on politics of, you know, the judge and, and whatnot. And, and that what you picture may may happen in smaller counties and smaller municipalities and stuff. But in ours, it's, it's a lot bigger. You know, we have kind of a sitting area where, you know, you may go to jail and you may not be in an actual cell right away, but just kind of sitting in like there's like a waiting holding area that's not locked or anything like that. You're just sitting there awaiting, you know, to get, you know, your pretrial and to go see the judge so that they can magistrate you, uh, basically letting you know what your, your crime was. And so it depends. Like if you have a crime that the judge says, hey, no, you can't go back out. And so they may say, hey, there's not going to be a bond. You got to sit in here until you have your trial type of thing. Um, and then there's some where somebody might be able to get out that day or the next day. It really just depends on what the offense is, what the severity is, what the charge, all that stuff. So. so when you're bailed out of jail, you're just bailed out of being stuck there. You still will have to eventually go to trial. Yeah. And that's like, you know, that's why you see a lot of like bail bondsmen close to the jails. 
you know, they'll pay the bond, you pay the percentage, and then you you owe them. And that, that is a whole nother episode that will yeah, happen someday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would go to the next level and ask maybe like a, a judge or something. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah that is another level. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll continue talking about uh, the police. So. Uh, now we'll move into more of the social issues. Of course, this podcast is all about the basics, but I think it's undeniable that there is a lot going on around the police force. My first question is, how has the negative stereotype about police officers played into your current experience as a police officer? I feel like there's always stereotypes, and usually the, the reason for them are just a lot of misunderstanding. When I became an officer, you know, obviously it, w- it wasn't anything close to how it is now. But there was a lot I didn't know, you know, and it took years of, you know, listening and training and kind of moving around the country and seeing things to kind of understand that the most important thing that we could do as police officers is help the community understand what and why, what we do and why we do it. It helps build trust. You know, the more transparency that we have as a profession, then the easier it is for people to look at a situation and say, oh, well, they can look at it a little bit differently. You know, it takes time to understand that not every single call is the same. Uh, Everything's so dynamic. The only way to get out of that is by education, understanding, bringing people in that, you know, may have be critical of the way things happen and allow them to at least see it in action or be a part of it and do it in action. And then see how those, those judgment calls and these, these things that happen so quickly can happen. Um, And it's not always, you know, just a, a bad person or a bad, you know, or a racist person, you know, it, it could just be, hey, this is what I was presented with and this was the action I took. Um, it was by policy or not. And so uh, I think understanding will take some of the negative stereotypes out, but that's kind of where I've put my focus on is helping people understand the profession. I've been doing that for the last six or seven years. I have more questions about this concept of understanding a little bit better um, with some listener questions. Uh, so the first one was, have you ever had to stand up to a coworker because their actions were racist? I wouldn't say that, you know, I've personally witnessed somebody being racist towards somebody else, um, but I know it happens. You can never really detect who's racist or, you know, if somebody does an action, you can't just be like, oh, well, yep, that had racial undertones or whatever, only because like, we don't know. They don't, really, the only way you can tell is if they say something pretty much, like if they do something, you don't know that that was their actual motivation. Okay. The next listener question is, how do you feel about defunding the police? Defunding the police takes, I mean, it's so convoluted. Originally, you know, when I first heard it and said, hey, I get it, because to me, it was more about building the community up. If it took taking some of the funds away from policing to make sure that we're reducing crime in, in other ways, then I'm all for that. You know, I've always told people that, hey, as a police officer, we should be thinking about how are we getting rid of crime, you know, and how are we helping young people grow up to where they don't feel like they need to commit crimes. If defunding can actually do that, then I'm all for it. Uh, what we've seen in some places that have been defunding is that they're just kind of doing it more as a punitive type of thing, where it's like, hey, we're going to punish your police department, we're going to take money away, and then we're going to figure out what we're going to do with it later, you know, and put it in things that really aren't necessarily community building. There's so many, so many politics involved in it, and it's like, you know, you have special interests and all this, and so I wouldn't mind if you said, hey, take $10 million and let's throw however many school counselors we can in every single school um, so that, you know, our kids are more taken care of while they're at school. Yeah. That for me, I'd be like, yeah, take it. So I agree with it only if it's the right way. I think that was a 
perfect answer. I think that helps understand the goal and then where it's also going wrong. Mm-hmm. And then also, I know, obviously, I mentioned earlier, you've been doing a lot for your community as well. So I'd love for you to share the different ways that you personally are also making a difference in this subject. I um, put something together. I, I call it the empathetic policing model. Uh, we're trying to actually build empathy in our officers. You know, we talk about reconciliation, you know, and what, what does that do? It's really just kind of owning up to, hey, understand that, hey, policing is not perfect, you know, and there are a lot of things that we can do to be better. And one of the big things is, is learning the history of policing from the eyes of, you know, marginalized communities, um, you know, even the LGBTQIA+, I hope I said that right, community, the Muslim American community, the Black community, Hispanic community. Um, so all of these, these communities that, you know, have been policed in a way that hasn't been fair for a long time, you know? And so, you know, when laws are passed against something, the police are the ones who have to enforce those laws and, and kind of internalizes it and says, well, you're attacking me because you're talking about police. And we're not talking about you personally. What we're talking about is what has been created um, and how it's been and why, you know, people have to get the talk. So a lot of people don't understand why the black community tells their kids, hey, you may not get the benefit of the doubt. Um, I want you to come home. So you make sure that, you know, you're yes, sir, no, ma'am. Um, you know, you're doing everything you can to comply because I want you to come home because you may not get the benefit of the doubt. No sudden movements, nothing like that. Right. Don't talk back. Be as respectful as possible. And that's more out of fear than out of respect. The other side is, hey, the police are here for you. They care about you. Uh, you know, if you need anything, call them. And that's what we want to be able to say in our community. But time and time again, and throughout history, we've seen that it's not the same. And so, you know, we have to earn the respect as police officers, building the relationships. Because if I stop you and I've talked to you before, now, you know, once I get up to the car, I see you, I'm like, oh, hey, how you doing? You know, that's a little bit different than if I don't know who you are and I think you might hurt me. Uh, hey, what are you doing, sir? You know, and it just changes the dynamic of things. And so if you can look at somebody as your brother or sister or family member um, and you treat everybody the same, you know, you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, and that should that should be for everybody. And then at some point, we'll get to that level where officers feel a little bit more comfortable and the community feels comfortable with the officers. And so that's one thing I'm trying to bring. And that's going to be like training as well as a model for officers to get involved with community policing and different types of non-enforcement interactions with people. People want us to be in their neighborhoods and actually having a good time with people and talking and you know, that way you can start having that education, but it's hard to give that education if you've never had a connection or built a relationship and had fun with somebody or ate with somebody or talked to somebody um, to be able to get to that point of being able to educate. So um, that's a department-wide thing that I would love to see here in my department and nationwide because um, that's what's really needed is the, the relationship building. The idea of the communication being based on respect instead of fear, I think, is is a perfect summary of what the goal needs to be. So thank you for sharing that perspective and that insight. Um, Do you have any final thoughts or messages that you want to share? Um, Really, I just appreciate this um, and you having me on and, you know, having this dialogue. uh, It's probably one of the most important things right now, just because of the way that the country is right now. It's just so divided. Um, It's almost like there's two teams. It's coming together, actually talking to people, not having knee-jerk reactions to things you know, just having dialogue. And that's really going to help because the more silent we are and the more antagonistic, the worse it's going to be. 
Um, and so I think that's the, the most important thing is to just continue the dialogue. Definitely. And I think that's really why I reached out to you. I felt like you were a good voice to try to make that effort to bring us all together to help us understand and be a little more educated. Uh, so of course, I'd love for you to plug your social media since that's how I found you. Yeah. So, you know, you can find me on TikTok, Instagram at Officer Bohannon. My Instagram is a zero as the O because um, I don't even know why that happened. I, it <laughs> wouldn't let me put a, actually a letter O in there for some reason. So it's zero for Sir Bohannon <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> Everything else is pretty much at Officer Bohannon, Facebook, TikTok, which is kind of the fun one that I have. And then people come over to Instagram to get education. So TikTok is just a, a fun app. So. <laughs> well, thank you again. I really appreciate your optimistic voice in all of this. I, I agree. These open conversations are what's going to help us move forward in a positive direction. Um, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in and being open to being educated on the police force. Uh, everyone stay safe, and we will check in with you next time. Is there another basic aspect of life that you cannot grasp? Send your topics to howdidigetthisfar at gmail.com and tag at howdidigetthisfarpod on Instagram with any helpful hacks. Well, that's as far as we will get for now. I'm Amanda Ogan. Thanks for listening.